Welcome to The Practice Podcast, a show created by lawyers to help lawyers in life and business without all the complicated lawyer language. Let's welcome Bast Amron founders and your hosts, Jeff Bast and Brett Amron. Hello and welcome to The Practice Podcast. I am Jeff Bast. Hi, Jeff. This is Brett Amron. Hello, Brett. Welcome to The Practice Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us here in studio, which is awesome. Elliot Kula is here. Elliot is a well-known and highly regarded appellate lawyer who not only handles appeals in state and federal court, but also consults and advises trial counsel during the trial, which is a whole, to me, a whole subset practice, which is super important. And like us, Elliot is a former big firm lawyer, opened his own practice now 10 and a half years. So congratulations to Thank Elliot Thank and you. welcome happy Elliot. Thank you. It's great to be here. So we're happy to have you. Yeah. We're super excited to and have you And great to be here in person. I know. Yeah. It's good to see a person in person, right? <laughs> I know. We were just talking about that. Like I can't remember the last time that we actually saw each other in person before today, which is a bit sad because you know, we would routinely see each other either in a court setting, yeah. in a formal setting, or at an event or something like that, right? That's right. A bankruptcy bar retreat. A bankruptcy bar retreat, exactly. <laughs> and so I think they just had one of those recently, didn't they? Yeah. They should be. But yeah, and hopefully we can start towards the end of this year, maybe the beginning of 22, getting back maybe a little bit to in-person events and activities a little more soon sooner. Yeah, it so, would be better. Elliot, you are an appellate lawyer. So how do you become an appellate lawyer besides being very smart and a good so, writer? My guess is those are the two primary skill sets. Those are the primary <laughs> skill sets you rely on. Yeah. Right. So there's two different ways to become an appellate lawyer. There's the traditional route of clerking for an appellate judge. And then from there, you move into an appellate department or appellate firm, boutique appellate firm. And then you're on your path to an appellate practice. That's the traditional way to do it. The other way to do it is to start working as an appellate lawyer without the benefit of a clerkship, which is the route I took. And that's, it's a harder route. It takes a lot more time to develop because you don't yeah. have the cred of a judicial clerkship behind you. What you do have is if you start in a, where I started at the Florida Attorney General's office here in the Miami Bureau, doing mostly criminal appeals, a few yeah. civil, but mostly criminal appeals. After two, three years of that, you get to say, well, I've had some ungodly number of oral arguments and briefs. And so you can then go in and become an appellate lawyer right. by sheer experience. So I didn't know that about you. That's great to know. So to me, I mean, I was a prosecutor here in Miami. So I got my experience by being thrown to the wolves, if you will, by going into court day one. And sounds like for an appellate lawyer, perhaps the Florida attorney general or something similar would be just like that. It, right? is, it is. Now, those are not as readily available. Sure. You know, the public defender's office, their appellate division is a fairly contained unit. Mm -hmm. And the Florida attorney general's office also is fairly contained. They don't open up positions very often. Right. But if you can get in there, that to me is a great way to start because you actually do become an appellate advocate with appellate advocacy experience, right. writing briefs, writing under a certain degree of pressure because you have trial lawyers that are dependent upon you. 
clerkships are still the traditional and the norm preferred route. I mean, you clerk for uh, the District Court of Appeal judge, you're going to get hired by one of the appellate departments in town. It's just the way it works. Assuming you performed well. And I feel like perhaps maybe with a clerkship, whether it's an appellate clerkship or not, I feel like there's maybe a little bit more tutelage and oversight, right? Then at least my experience at the prosecutor's office, I would imagine for the Florida Attorney General, it's kind of the same thing, right? They give you a stack and they say, good luck. Good luck. And Figure here's, it here's, out. Your, here's your quota. We want to see six, eight briefs a month. <laughs> uh, those are just the principal briefs and have at it. We don't really care that you have yeah. three arguments on a given Tuesday morning. Right. It's just the way it goes. And there's no structured training or anything like that. No. Right. In terms of how to present an oral argument or how to write a brief or anything like that. That's correct. But as I'm sure you experienced in your work, Mm -hmm. it's wherever you are, you sort of find your mentor. Yeah. And you have to work at finding a mentor, a good mentor who knows what they're doing, who has good credibility in the community, who has good skill sets and who cares. That happens wherever. If you start in a big firm, you're going to be in a chair, not really sure what you're doing unless you find that mentor who's going to help you. And mentorship's just, it's sort of a word that's thrown around a lot, but most lawyers who have attained a level of experience and status or reputation in the community all can point back to one, two, three mentors they've had over time at critical points, at critical junctures in their lives. And I think that if you don't seek out that mentor in whatever environment you're in, Mm -hmm. whether it's your solo practitioner hanging up your own shingle for the first time and you got to find your teachers, or you're in a big firm and you're lost in a sea of 2,300 lawyers, or you're at a public defender's office or the Florida attorney judge, or even if you're a clerk in a court where you can really get lost in your judge's chambers, if you don't make the outreach to meet clerks from other chambers, judges from other chambers, it happens often where you interview a clerk, a young lawyer coming off of a clerkship, and they know their judge really well. And that's amazing to have that kind of deep relationship with your judge. And you go to your judge's house for Sunday dinner, and it's your member of that judge's family. And, mm-hmm. and I hear those stories, and I'm always envious to be able to say that you have that kind of close relationship with the judge. Yeah. But then when you say, well, do you know the clerk? No, I never really got to meet the clerk court. But what about any of the other judges? Well, no, not really. And that's, to me, is a missed opportunity. Yeah. Well, Jeff was lucky enough to have me as his mentor. I I was going to say the same thing. I I mean, mean, you're you're sitting here talking to my mentor. So lucky. I mean, so lucky. That is uh, thankful every day. You should be. You should be. (laughs) So how did you get into, or how did you decide that you wanted to get into the appellate practice? Basically, my first job was doing appellate work. Right. I mean, why did did you you decide to apply there, you know? I wanted to work for a, in public sector when Mm -hmm. I started, I wanted to have a job at the state attorney's office, a public defender's office, a Florida attorney general's office. I didn't do a lot of like practical seminars in law school. Right. I did a lot of appellate seminars, but not a lot of like litigation skills. Right. So that sort of disadvantaged me in terms of finding a litigation position. It's also 1993. I'm dating myself a little bit. It was not a great time. I moved down from Minneapolis. And when I came to Miami and started to talk to people, the reaction I was getting was, oh, is that in Indiana? (laughs) You know what? That's reasonable. Indianapolis, Minneapolis, that's fair. No, Uh, it's not um, fair. That's terrible. And then one interview I had with a firm in Broward, a substantial firm that doesn't exist anymore, their question was, oh, what's it like to be from the town that the Fonz 
<laughs> I, it took me a minute. I wasn't sure what they're saying. And then I realized Madison, they thought that they thought Madison? that Minneapolis was actually in Milwaukee. Oh, oh Milwaukee. Yeah, that's right. So it's Milwaukee. sort of And that's why they no longer exist. That's right. By the way. So I found that that was actually became a good conversation piece and sure. sort of a novelty. The attorney general's office at the time actually was in a hiring freeze, but because I was coming from out of town, mm. there was an opportunity to hire someone from out of right. town. And so I ended up quite luckily obtaining the position and then you made the fortune turned on fortune, and I was blessed to have a bureau chief, Mike mm -hmm. Neiman, who was just an amazing mentor. Mm -hmm. And I was able yeah. to spend a lot of time sitting on the couch in his office doing my work right there with him. Yeah. And so that was a special time and a special experience. And from there, I knew I was only going to be doing appellate work. And you went from there to a big firm. And then how long were you at Big Law? Well, I did a brief stint at a regional defense firm doing right. their appeals. I was there for about three years and then had the opportunity to join the appellate practice group at Greenberg Torg. And you were there how long before you started your own 12 firm? years. 12 uh -huh. years. Mm -hmm. And then you made the plunge. Made the plunge. And you went, the time at Greenberg was firm. fantastic. And again, it was one of those just fortuitous opportunities. And then the being blessed with some lawyers there who were tremendous mentors like Arthur England. Oh, yeah. May he rest in peace. Yeah. Former Chief Justice of Florida Supreme Court. It's pretty amazing to be able to test your chops in his office. Yeah, and get the great mentorship, like you said, along the way. It sounds like you get a great mentor at the Florida Attorney General and then other mentors, including Arthur England at Greenberg Charg. Correct. And then, like Jeff said, 10 years ago, 10 plus years ago, you decided to open your own firm. What sort of led you to that? Not obviously, like you said, you enjoyed your time at Greenberg and all that, but what led you to say, you know what, I'd like to try and, you know, open my own shop and do my own thing. You know, it was a time in 2010 that a lot of my friends from mm -hmm. within Greenberg and outside of Greenberg were venturing out on their own, trying things, pairing up, sharing space. And so I thought that there was, first of all, an opportunity there because all these people were out there and they could have used somebody. And I knew they probably were comfortable with me or someone like me because they were used to having an appellate department that they could call up ask questions, don't give you a billing number and exploit you and, right. and develop a relationship with you and then bring you in when the time is right. So I thought that there was an opportunity. I thought that there was something that these folks were missing out on. Yeah, There's certainly a number of outstanding solo appellate attorneys in Miami and throughout the state, very good friends. It's a small bar. And I thought, you know what, there's room in that group for one more. And it was an esteemed group. And I thought maybe I could join that group. And they were very gracious in allowing me to join that group of solo appellate practitioners. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to make the plunge. I also wanted to, when you're in a big firm, you're sort of in a club. And that's not to be sure. not saying anything bad about that. It's wonderful to be in a club and you have instantaneous friends and you have instantaneous clients and you have an instantaneous referral workload, right? Workload. Yeah. It's yeah. always there. You get in the morning, there is always a brief you can write, but there's something more exciting to the dynamic of going out and meeting people and meeting trial lawyers and being able to become friends with them and work with them on their matters mm -hmm. and becoming sort of partners with them on their cases right. and make new friends. Yeah. You don't have to sell us on no, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's something yeah. exciting about every right. day waking up and meeting a new friend. Right. 
Sure. No, and I think I'm like you. I didn't. You know, I wasn't unhappy at my big firm. I just felt like I needed something new. And I think Brett was in large part the same way. We wanted to build something yeah. new and you know try something different. And I think there's something exciting to trying something new. Practicing law is generally a staid existence, right? We rely on precedent. We don't like to stray from precedent. We'll move things very, very slowly. We don't like change. Sit on the appellate rules committee or the civil rules committee for the Florida bar and try and deal with the change. No matter how great the proposal is and no matter how great the work is by the subcommittee, that civil rules committee is going to take probably three or four meetings before they're willing to accept the change. It's easy to become stale. Yeah. And I'm not saying I felt stale because it was certainly a dynamic practice and a dynamic environment, but coming in and seeing the same people as opposed to coming in and every day seeing it's, new people. Right. It's actually the opposite. It's not stale. It's comfortable. It's and that's why most lawyers don't make the change because they're comfortable and you have to get uncomfortable to make a change. And right. so that is difficult for most people. Yeah, right. And when you're in an appellate practice where you work with different trial lawyers, different trial lawyers have different gestalts, right? The difference in gestalt is levels of OCD, Degrees of control they like to have. Degrees of this is the way I do it and this is the way I do it versus every time is a new book. Right? There's different. When you do work in a large firm, there's generally a gestalt for the department, the litigation department. Right. Everyone's growing up and spending time together. And so you have a shared sort of frame of reference. When you're working with lots of different lawyers, it's pretty intense because sometimes you get a lawyer who's very hands-on, sometimes they're hands-off, sometimes they have this mode yeah. of, they like to see these phrases. Some like to begin a sentence with and, some hate to begin a sentence with but. Those are trivial points, but the point of that is, I think working with a lot of different people makes you a better lawyer and gives you a broader perspective and a frame yeah. of reference because you don't approach it and say, okay, this is the way it's done. And I would think that more than any particular practice area, the appellate practice would be sort of more open to that, right? Because you're going to be working with the trial lawyers and, you know, on one-offs here and there, obviously getting more work from the same, perhaps the same trial lawyers, but everyone's going to be like, you know, I, we need the appellate lawyer. Mm -hmm. And so now let's bring in the appellate lawyer. And so you're going to be working with all these different people. And that to me sounds like the, the appellate practice is more open to that than really any area. And I think you become a better appellate lawyer if you work with a lot of different yeah. lawyers because you get different perspective. I mean, you can um, say that about but, any practice though, right? I mean, absolutely. you become better by working with other practices, other well, sure. lawyers, other clients, handling different cases, right? Absolutely. I would imagine if you work with the same trustee right. every single time, if you work with the same insurance right. company every single sure. time. It's part of why in, in this firm, we don't have departments or teams. You know, you work with somebody different on almost every case. And so obviously there's only 20 two of us here. Right. But but I would say that firms generally, you know, a product is going to come out of a firm and the idea is like a product or a lawyer is going to come and you kind of know what you're going to get in terms of the type of work product or whatever, right? Generally hope, speaking right. from yeah. a smaller firm, not right. for sure. a large there, firm, there may be a wide array. The appellate practice is you are working directly with the lawyers correct. as opposed to where we right. have individual clients or companies most of the time. You're not really working with clients. Yeah. Your clients are the lawyers right. most of the time. And that's an interesting yeah. dynamic to the practice as right. well, whether it's a big firm or a small boutique or solo. Right. When you're an appellate lawyer, your reference is 
lawyers. Trial lawyer. Right. So we have probably, I'd say of our agenda, which is a pretty hefty agenda of active cases, I'd say probably 70% of them come from other lawyers. Mm -hmm. And then there's 30% that come from what I like to call the end user, the actual client that calls. And frankly, I don't like when the client calls because it's an Mm -hmm. odd introduction to the case. And also, candidly, it's too much work to get that case in the door. If the lawyer calls me who I know, or Mm -hmm. the lawyer knows a lawyer I know, or whatever the connection might be, the degrees of separation, they're making the pitch to the client. I don't have to worry about anything. Yeah, I don't have to sell my rate. I don't have to sell my skill sets. They're the ones that are making the pitch to the client. Then there's an invitation to the team as opposed to a client saying, we're bringing someone this in. Guy, right. So that's an interesting yeah. dynamic, though. I mean, give us some examples of when a yeah. client would call you as I'm opposed a little, to a lawyer. I'm, I'm surprised yeah. that it's that high. That's 30%, high. 30, yeah. That seems very high to me, yeah. but I would have thought it would have been 90-10 or 95-5. Yeah, that seems kind uh, of so, high. So agree. it's really a client loses and, well, you tell us. Or the client is in the midst of a case. They're in post-trial. They know it's heading to an appeal. They've tried to settle and they realize that you know they've offered their... 40, 50% mm-hmm. of the case value and it's not settling or they've, they're on the plaintiff side. They've been offered a mere 50% and it's not going to be enough to right. get it done. So then you'll get the clients reaching out. Now, it's not individual clients. It's not like a personal injury right. plaintiff Corporate. is not calling. It's right. more of a business owner calling. Right. Right. And that could be a commercial lease dispute. It could be just a general business dispute. A sophisticated dispute. client who's been involved in litigation before and hasn't, Correct. didn't like some piece of how the trial went or Correct. how it's going. Right. Now, and so they're not really relying necessarily on their lawyer to give them a referral. Their lawyer may have given them a referral, but they also called someone they know and they said, call right. Elliot. So that happens and that's extremely uncomfortable. Yeah, for sure. And that I don't like that, but that's another layer of the work because then I need to convince the trial lawyer that I'm yeah. here to be part of the team. Yeah, Don't worry, there'll be no yeah. conversations. Everything's transparent. We're all part of a team. Yeah, but that, that only goes over so well. I mean, right, right. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is that our practices have a great parallel because we often are that call too. The client's going to lose. Usually it comes from the lawyer. They're going to lose yeah. in litigation and they need to start exploring alternatives, not appellate alternatives, but insolvency alternatives, or they're concerned about the other side. And so they're either calling you or they're calling us, right. you know, if there's going to be a win or a loss or there's a financial component to it. Right. And so we work a lot with the lawyers. I'm curious for you on the other side, the 70%, what percentage of those call you before the end of the trial, before they have a verdict or a loss or whatever? I would imagine that most trial lawyers don't bring in an appellate lawyer until after the loss when you'd rather be brought in earlier, but is it their first deep experience with an appellate lawyer <laughs> or a new appellate lawyer right. is usually late. Right. Yeah. The house so is on fire already. It's usually they've late. already lost and maybe well, they're doing the, the second, or they're working on or the second call comes much earlier. Or right. there's been a ruling that renders right. it too far gone already. Correct. Right. So what's the right time to call you? The right time to call. Let's give a lesson to all the litigators out there. So the right time to call is when you expect that there's going to be a controversial, potentially damning decision to you or to the other side, because you get an order 
granting a motion to strike 17 affirmative defenses with prejudice and you are golden because now you just have your one breach of contract count. I mean, how hard could that be? I could try that in my sleep, you're saying. Those are controversial. That is just any sort of example, controversial, potentially damning issue that's coming up is worth calling on. And no one ever got slammed for making a call. We spend a lot of our days answering calls from people who are just calling to chat about something. Let me get your gut check. Actually, I did that to you earlier today. I gave, right, yeah, I asked yeah, you for yeah, a gut check on something. So there's nothing wrong with calling an appellate lawyer and saying, hey, give me a gut check on this. Right. What's your sense? I'm going to move to strike 17 affirm. I'm going for summary judgment. I know discovery is still open, but you know their discovery is a bunch of hooey. What do you think about that? And then there's an opportunity to talk about it and say, I like aggressive. You want to be aggressive? Go for it. I love summary judgment on affirmative defenses. Narrow down your cases. I know people don't like to, why waste your time fighting over an immaterial affirmative defense? But you know what? There's something, some cred in a case when you get to knock out four or five affirmative defenses. But it's before the end. Yeah, is the point. They, I think most litigators aren't thinking about appellate counsel, even if they're litigating a significant case, until after they've lost or won. And there's two benefits to the call. Or there are three. First of all, you get free advice. Second benefit. Really? Everyone heard that? <laughs> <laughs> the second benefit you have is you start getting someone else on the margins involved in the case. You don't want, I personally don't like to be too deeply involved in trial cases because, and I'm not able to come at it with that fresh perspective that you need of the appellate lawyer to be able to zero in and say, okay, all that other stuff is noise. Here's the simple, narrow issue, the almost abstract issue that we want to argue to the appellate court. So I sometimes don't like being involved in every motion to dismiss, every motion to eliminate, deciding whether to object or not to object. Good lawyers know when to object. Good lawyers know what motions eliminate a file before trial. We like to work with good lawyers and our good lawyers do that. So I don't like to get too involved, but here's the third benefit of calling early. You know, there are strategic moves you can make to leverage an appeal or avoid an appeal, depending on how you characterize a motion for example, depending on how you argue, depending on how you lead the court to rule in your persuasive tact, you could create an opportunity to appeal or you can avoid an opportunity to appeal. And sometimes you may want to create it. And there are all sorts of sometimes, for lack of a better word, maybe it's a little swarmy reason to appeal. Maybe you want to have an appeal that causes the litigation in the trial court to come to a halt because you know this judge is leaving the division in three months. <laughs> I'm not saying it's a right thing to use an appeal for that purpose. And I would never abuse the process, file an appeal merely to slow it down. But sometimes litigation is about a momentum. Right. Sure. There's some strategy to it. Sometimes, by the way, you want to get your ruling because it'll help you in your next step in the game of chess. But you don't want that to be a step that causes the other side to have an interlocutory appeal or a basis for filing some sort of extraordinary writ that potentially could lead to an order to show cause that depending on the extraordinary writ could operate as an automatic stay and everyone out of the pool in the trial court. The next thing you know, your brilliant move in the trial court turned out to be an order to show cause in the appellate court that created an out of the pool moment. And then of course, two months later, that petition for a writ of prohibition is denied and you were shown to be right and you were smart all along, but you were smart in a way that cost you three months. Right. Yeah. So what percentage of your practice is dealing with straight appeals versus advising and counseling trial lawyers? So this is actually a COVID-influenced 
question. Because <laughs> now there's um, no trials. Yeah, right? And no I know trials. COVID influence, everything is COVID influence. So, so actually, let me rephrase the question, if I may, pre-2020 versus today. Okay. So pre-2020, I would say that our practice was probably, I'm going to say, 85 to 90% pure appellate. Mm-hmm. With the exceptional appearance in the trial court. And then it was only maybe for a motion for stay or something very much ancillary to the appeal. Okay. Maybe a relinquishment of jurisdiction to tie up one loose end and we'd come in, but rarely were we in the trial court. Were we involved in the case? Yes. And did we know about things and were we contributors to decisions made? Yes. But that was all a behind the scenes. And because I'm not good at monetizing, it was not a monetized end of the practice. That was sort of the social end of the practice that we could then be able to ensure that we'd have the appellate work, which is what we really liked. Some would call that business development. Right. Some would call that business development. (laughs) Someone who had business training before they opened their firm would say that. Yes. Return on investment, perhaps. Yes. I've heard that. ROI. ROI. That's right. Um, And because the lawyers we're working with, Mm -hmm. lawyers, you know, like you guys, you know your way around the courtroom. You know that no one needs to elbow you and say object. It's, you know what's a good closing argument, what's a bad closing argument. You know the motions in limine, as I said before. So our involvement was really much more in a strategic, let me get your take on this. Right. Not ready to bring you in, but let me get your take on this. It was sort of, to me, it was very much mirroring my experience in the big firm, which was, I don't have a billing number for you yet, but let me get your take on this. Right. You know, can you take a look at this motion? I don't have my billing number on me. I think it's somewhere uh, yeah. as they I'll, pat I'll their get that. Blazer. I'll get that to you. Thanks so much. Yes, yeah. exactly. Right. And friends help friends. We always like to say we work with our friends and we're friends with the people we work with. Right. I always joke that if any of the trial lawyers we work with called and wanted, needed a ride to the airport tomorrow morning, I would 100% take them to the airport. And then I also joke that if I asked them, they probably would 100% call me an Uber. <laughs> <laughs> so how's that changed? You said pre and post COVID. So, so has there been any shift? And there change? has been a okay. shift, okay, because the trials were limited, because cases became stalled, yep. because discovery was stalling, because people didn't know what to do at first. People were calling, you know, there was a lot of panic, a lot sure. of panic. And what are other ways we can do? Some lawyers panicked and froze. Some lawyers panicked and said, okay. We got to find another route. Road closed. It's no big deal. Our job is to find another path right. through. Right. And so another path through was other ways to litigate your case. I think I mentioned before, you know, attacking an affirmative defense. You know, normally people didn't. It was like, ah, what Not do I got to deal it, right. with that? Now <laughs> you attack an affirmative defense and you get that affirmative defense stricken because it's legally insufficient or it's just irrelevant or just misstated. Factually people, not supported. Yeah, people like, will right, float an affirmative exactly. defense, unilateral mistake. And the factual allegations is, well, I made a mistake. Well, that's not unilateral mistake. So we can get rid of that one on a summary judgment, right? Or they'll allege an affirmative defense of fraud, but there's no reliance. So what right. are you talking about? Right. And now that doesn't move the case. And that was the reaction we were getting. Well, that's not going to move my case. You're just spinning wheels. I know, but now the other guy has to turn around, tell their client, opposing counsel has to tell their client, all right, well, one of the affirmative defenses was stricken. Now they have to tell their client, well, that affirmative defense was stricken, but don't worry about it because it was a meaningless affirmative defense. You've created a dynamic on the other side of tension. Isn't that what litigation is about? It's an incremental move in cases of finding additional facts, an incremental move in obtaining legal rulings to narrow the issues. And when you get to a point that the gap is narrowed enough, where all of a sudden everyone can pretty much see how the trial is going to turn out, then they can settle and never need their appellate lawyer, by the way. Right. You're you're clearing obstacles, (laughs) basically. 
You're clearing obstacles. Yeah. So yeah, and you are, as you're speaking about it, I hear that you're a supplement. You augment the trial team. Yeah. You know, you're exactly. given outside perspective, but you're also looking at it from the perspective of the next stage, which I just think a lot of lawyers are not thinking about. A lot of them are not even thinking about what happens after they get the judgment in terms of collection, which is you know something we do a lot of, but they're certainly not thinking of what happens if we lose or when the other side loses and doesn't like the outcome of this trial. And so you force there, people to think yeah. about that. And listen, there are some very important procedural steps, necessary procedural steps, not mere niceties in closing out your litigation before going to appeal that you do have to take and you want to make sure you do those in the proper and orderly way so that you don't have a preservation. Rarely do I see an issue that trial counsel waived because they forgot to object. Everyone is objecting. Rarely do I see an issue where one of the trial lawyers I work with will object to the question objection sustained and remember to ask for the curative. They all do that. They know it's their checklist. They're trying cases. They know how to do that kind of stuff. Where the trip up sometimes happen is in jury instructions, where you can actually have preserved something all along the way. And then comes time for jury instructions and you forget that you've got to recall something and you agree to a jury instruction that waives everything or a post-trial motion that forgets to call something up that might need to be called up. Right. Everyone good with the jury instructions? Yes. That does happen. And that's because you've just battled over the instructions. Right. And without saying yes, could you have a trouble if you don't say yes? And But remember, we want to make sure we preserve our objections over these. I want to make sure, Judge, that my proffer of these jury instructions are there. Those are some procedural niceties necessary for preservation that happen late in the case, more in the trial phase, post-trial phase. Mm-hmm. And that's where sometimes there's a misstep. And then to your question about there's another layer of review. You know, one of the things that lawyers always have to recognize is that it's not about us. My preference right. for how a document should look, it doesn't matter whether I like Bookman or Ariel. What matters hmm. is, do the judges on the Third District Court of Appeal like Bookman or Ariel? And so when you get together with them, you should keep your ears open and listen to them talk more than telling them about how amazing you are. Hmm. So we all do this when we go into court, trial court, appellate court. You want to know how is this being received? And there are triggers when we say things. I mean, there are triggers with our spouse or with our kids. You say things and it just creates a trigger that you didn't mean to trigger. That's not what I was saying at all. And it's like, well, that's what you said. Right. So when you're in the trial court, you have the benefit of appearing in front of that judge regularly. And you're developing a relationship with that judge. The judge is developing a relationship with your case. And the party. I had a case right. a few years ago where every time you went back in front of this judge who was a fantastic judge since retired, he would say, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is the case about that soggy tuna fish sandwich, right? And it was. It was a case against a car dealership. And the only thing that kept sticking in the judge's mind was that older couple came to buy a car and they kept them there by giving him a tuna fish sandwich from the machine. And the wife jumped up in the middle and said, and it was a soggy tuna fish sandwich. <laughs> so there are all sorts of triggers. Now, that's good because yeah. the judge surely remembers your case. case. Yeah. You dropped something for inadvertently. Right. And it's great. But it's always keeping in mind. Yeah. Now, when you go to the appellate court, and here's where it is different. The judges, first of all, there's three of them. So there's, that's a dynamic. Second is that they come from, to the case without any perspective. Right. They don't know anything. Sure, they know the trial lawyer is a good trial lawyer. They know the trial judge is a good trial judge. You know, they know the appellate lawyer is reliable and trustworthy in their citation of case law and record. But they don't know anything about the case. They have no developmental or institutional knowledge of the case. Right. They're reading it in black and white, right. effectively. Yeah. Right. 
And we say that all the time. Oh, it's a cold record. And it's just the black and white of the transcript. The mm -hmm. judge isn't looking at the witnesses in the eyeballs. They're just looking at the word on the page. But you know what? If you stop and think about that for a minute, that is a huge distinction. That's a judge. Yeah. We sometimes tell our trial lawyers that it's, you know, you're on the inside of the case. And we'll jump off of this when they say, oh, we're caught in the weeds. Yeah, you're caught in the weeds. And that's not bad. You are in the inside of the case developing it. And it's becoming this mushroom of a case and you've developed it and it's beautiful. So we're coming into it and the appellate judges are coming into it as instead of inside out, it's outside in. Mm. It's the difference yeah. between being sure. a producer right. Right. of a movie right. and being a film critic. Right. Yeah. It's a lot easier uh, to be we a always film critic, say <laughs> sometimes it's hard to see the picture when you're in the frame. You know, you're so, so often lawyers are so invested in their case that they, you know, lose the forest for the trees or, you know, whatever. Pick your metaphor. Right. So, and there's something to be said for, and maybe this is why our forefathers set it up this way, right? Is because the appellate courts get to review it without all of the outside influence and say, all right, well, let's look at the record. And is this the right decision or not? Right. Based on the record itself. Right. And so yeah. maybe that's why they did say they were very smart when they did that. So how, if at all, and we'll get to the COVID question, because, you know, everyone gets to ask the COVID question, sure. but how has COVID changed the appellate practice? So in terms of the appellate courts across the state, they have functioned without missing a beat, literally without missing a beat. Mm -hmm. They have continued to function. They have continued. You file your briefs. They review their briefs. They conduct oral argument in the cases that they want to conduct oral argument. Oral arguments are a little more rare these days, much to my personal chagrin. But again, it's not my personal preference. If they prefer to rule without oral argument, then I'd prefer it to. Right. So it hasn't missed a beat. It never required a cattle call, as they say about the motion calendar, right? There's no UMC that requires a bunch of people to show up or whatever the equivalency is in bankruptcy, right? So it didn't alter it in the least. It altered the types of appeals and it did make oral argument via Zoom a norm, mm -hmm. which is different. Oral argument has been limited. There's few oral arguments that was happening pre-COVID. Now they're by Zoom. Do you think that's going to stick? I think it's going to stick. I think what's going to happen and it's already happening is it's oral argument is... There's a default to Zoom with the option to go in person if the lawyers can agree to it. I have two cases coming up for oral argument in the beginning of one's October, early October, and opposing counsel and I have both agreed we're going to do it in person. Third District Court of Appeal in person. And what are some of the factors that you consider when deciding whether to do it by Zoom or in person? So personally, I would always opt for in person. And here's, it's going to just be a little bit of because it is about me for just a moment. And it's yeah. never about me. I'm number five of six kids. So it was never about me. <laughs> I really enjoy walking up courthouse steps. I like that feeling of that pit of your stomach falling out and that anxiety, the nerves, the just the cold sweat. I love that. That is really walking into an appellate courtroom and mm -hmm. seeing the three chairs and doing that gulp <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, and yeah, then yeah. looking at everything, just all the words on the pages, just flying around. I love that feeling. To me, there's an awesomeness to walking into an appellate courtroom that I love. And you lose that on Zoom? I think you lose that on Zoom because on Zoom, I'm walking around my office, I'm chit-chatting with Aaron and William, I'm getting another cup of coffee. You're I'm, wearing pajama pants. Right, exactly. Right, right. right. Yeah. shorts and flip-flops, flip right? It's just right. A, little, it's a little different. Yeah. different. And I yeah. miss, I like courtrooms. Do you but, think that there's anything lost with an interaction with the bench while you're on Zoom? 
So I think there is, but I say so hesitantly because the judges say there isn't. So okay. if I say there is, well, it's I'm up to them, not going right. to disagree with right, them, and right, I'm not right. going to second guess that there's nothing lost. Right. But objectively, and I've said this, I'm not afraid to say because I've said it in open forums before, when you're dealing with three judges, mm-hmm. it's nice to see them look at each other. And in a game of inches, everything matters. The raise of an eyebrow can tell you to press forward on a point. The roll of an eye at another judge's question could tell you, okay, I got a problem in that question that I may have to think about. Oral argument's only 15 minutes per side. If you're lucky, sometimes it's only 10. If you score big, it's 20. But generally 15 minutes. You reserve three minutes for rebuttal. The standard three minutes for rebuttal. You take one minute to introduce yourself and button your jacket and say, may please the court. You get like 11 minutes to argue. Right. But I think you also, I think in a lot of respects on Zoom, you know, here I am, non-appellate lawyer, arguing with an appellate lawyer, but on Zoom, you're looking face to face with the judges. You're seeing them with greater clarity than you normally are from the podium to the bench in a lot of courtrooms. And some of them are smaller, but I do think you get pretty close visual, but you don't get the body language. But you are absolutely correct. You do get close. It's a much closer look at the screen going. They can see that if they did shave close enough this morning or not. And are the judges in the same room or they're in different rooms too? They could be in different rooms. Right. They're running Zoom from their individual chambers. So that's to me different, right? That if they're on camera and the three of them are sitting together, then you may get that vibe right. as opposed to if they're each individual, you know, in their own right. chambers, you may, it may and, be a little different. And then it comes to who's on the panel too. Right. I sure. mean, listen, if you're in one of the DCAs, that's pretty spread out so that you might, for example, the fourth DCA, which might have a judge in Fort Lauderdale and a judge in West Palm and a judge in Vero Beach, it's not so comfortable for them to all have to right. travel together. So they may be working right. remote generally and sure. that's their norm. So it's not a big deal. You may have judges on your panel who you know are, particularly friendly or who enjoy the banter that this can be a. And do you think things are moving or well into the future? Do you see this sticking? I think you do. Do you think things are going to move faster as a result of, in terms of decisions, given that number one, right now trials aren't moving that fast. So I guess they're getting through their backlog here. I am speaking for them, but maybe they're getting through their backlog and then not having to, like you said, travel set up, appellate arguments on particular days, they can move their calendars around with Zoom. I mean, do you think things are going to move a little faster or same pace generally? I think they're going to stay the same pace generally. I think oral argument is just going to end up being less expensive maybe for the clients. Mm -hmm. But I think the process overall will remain about the same. What I would like to see, if I could say what I would like to see, if you're going to be able to do Zoom oral arguments, that facilitates oral argument and cuts down the cost on oral argument, then let's have more of them too. Because right. there is, although the cases are briefed and the cases are fully vetted by three judges and each of them having a law clerk and various degrees of intensity, depending on whether they're primary or secondary or whatever the internal mechanisms the court might have, mm-hmm. it's pretty well vetted before you get to oral argument. Very little is accomplished at oral argument. Judges say that, and it's true. You go to an oral argument and it's, you know where it's headed. But they're getting, but they're they're getting their questions answered. I mean, they they're always, you could read a brief and still have some yes, questions. Absolutely. And I think that there is ground to be covered in an oral argument. There is an interface with the judges that can be accomplished in an oral argument. I think it opens the courthouse to have an oral argument. Otherwise, there's no right. courthouse to be seen by people. 
I would like to see out of this Zoom a return to more oral arguments than fewer. Right. It'd be interesting to see if that plays out. I agree. I think it should build efficiencies for everybody, for the courts, for the clients, for the lawyers. In the trial court, we see a lot, now that we're doing a lot more litigation support officially, Sure, we see a lot more status conferences with the judges. I think uh, that's happening in federal court. Too. I know, Jeff, we've talked about the preference to go down to the courthouse and like deals are cut standing outside of the motion calendar. But I'm not sure we're ever going to go back to that. And I, for one, I'm okay with that because it's such a time suck sure. for I the think, judges and for the yeah. lawyers. I mean, I stand outside for two hours for a five-minute calendar. But a status know? conference is actually, you know, we find that those yes. are very helpful. You can sort of get a little insight into what the judge is thinking. Absolutely. You can start to pepper and condition the judge sure. a little bit through a 15-minute status conference. And the judges are willing to do that because it's just a click of a button. And the judges yes. can condition the lawyers, too, by giving a little, sometimes they give feedback in right. more than one, Correct. sometimes direct ways and sometimes indirect ways That's right. the yeah. lawyers about arguments that they don't find appealing or do find appealing. Well, I know there's one judge in particular that we're in front of a bunch that has every 30 days we'll have a case management conference. And was there anything to report this week? Anything you need me for? Great. We'll see you next time. Sure. And then 30 days out. Or it beats what, an emergency motion on a Thursday right. night that requires or what you, a Friday or, morning or What's here. going on? Tell me about this. If it's the first time, tell me about this case. Uh-huh. Tell me about what are your defenses that if you know what the defenses are. And just to get a preview, so you need to be prepared, which is a good thing. And it gives the judge a little preview and gives you, like Jeff said, maybe an opportunity for the judge to say something or not. And So I think Zoom will facilitate that. I agree. I'm a fan. I, really I think well. it's great for that kind of thing. Jury trials, obviously, no. And bench trials, we've done a bunch. I think they work for sure. And the technology is such that I think it's helpful. And I think judges, I think you can read them just as well as you can in the courtroom. And so I do see that continuing as well. I agree. I think Zoom is super efficient. I just think it loses the opportunity for resolution in person. Because how many deals, we've seen it for our whole careers, how many deals are cut on the courthouse steps? So many of them, the overwhelming majority. And when you're in a different room, that opportunity for that friendly dialogue when you're riding the elevator together or you're sitting there waiting for your case to be called yeah. is just lost. And there's a collaboration that ends up happening as yeah. well. What are you doing here? Well, I'm here on a motion yep. in front of Judge right. Smith. Exactly. Oh, I'm here on just one in front exactly. of Judge Jones. Yeah. So those little... Let's grab a cup of coffee. I want to run something by you. The exactly. next thing you know, those right. you may have helped your friend avoid a pitfall or right. maybe you've taken well, a new case. Yeah. I'd say the same thing with <clears throat> depositions and mediations. It's right. the same thing and not being there's in the so room. There's so many breakthroughs that happen in the hallway or just it's a social practice exactly so and just reading the body language of a witness sure yeah i say we use both counsel yes yeah no i think there will be they will facilitate sometimes zoom and sometimes in person i hope the judges can read the cases that need to be sometimes cases need to be in person i was on a panel talking about zoom oral arguments and the question i raised was we have zoom we're not losing zoom it's not going away no So let's look at the process. Mm -hmm. This was an appellate process panel. Let's look at the appellate process and say, with Zoom, is there something about the process that we want to change because we now have Zoom? Mm. Instead of taking Zoom and saying, we have oral arguments, let's try and push those two concepts together. Is there something about appellate practice that we might be able to evolve now that we have Zoom? Perhaps now that we have Zoom, there can be some sort of pre-oral argument status conference with judges. Just spitballing something I was saying. I don't know whether that makes sense. Perhaps we can have a status conference with the motions panel 
to discuss jurisdiction because now we have Zoom and it's just touch of a button, 15 minutes, we talk through jurisdiction and it avoids the possibility of jurisdiction becoming a problem at oral argument after everyone sunk a lot of money and time into the case yeah. and you realize, my gosh, this case should have never been here. It should be expansive. So Zoom is here. We're not getting rid of it. It's great technology. It's only going to get better. It's going to facilitate communications. It's going to facilitate socialization, not replace it. The question is, what do we do about this process? Is there another element to the process that we can add? Or is there an element of the process that we need to tinker with? Right. Because we have this new technology. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think there's going to be developments over the, and the, the rules next years to come yeah. that we don't even know. Right. But I think hopefully we'll enhance the practice. And lawyers are traditionally very slow. We talked yeah. about that to change. So hopefully the practice does change. Yeah. This was great. This is great, Elliot. This really, really has been a lot it. of fun. Thank you so much for the invitation. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star review, follow us, and share the podcast with your friends and family. And if you heard anything today that led to any questions about the podcast or you want to hear a topic, you want to hear us discuss something, or you're interested in being a guest, please reach out to us and we'll have Elliot's information, contact information in the show notes. So reach out to Elliot as well. And thank you for listening, Nelson. Thank you for, as always, Nelson's the man. Elliot, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it. Thank you both. I really enjoyed it. For more information on this show and other resources, visit FastAmron.com and connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at FastAmron.com.